Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is writer and podcaster, Anthony Johnston. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, John. It's lovely to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. You do so many things. For the listeners, I want to give you a brief introduction. Anthony Johnston is a New York Times bestselling writer and podcaster. The Charlize Theron movie, Atomic Blonde, is based on his graphic novel. His Bridget Sharp thrillers are critically acclaimed. And Dead Space, his first video game, Xbox, redefined its genre. And he also hosts the podcast Writing and Breathing, and another one which we'll talk about as well. So uh, looking at your career, I'm so glad I have you on the show because you do so many things of interest to the Mac community, to the technical community, to writers, podcasters, my listeners. You just do it all. It's amazing. <laughs> I wouldn't say I do it all, but I certainly try it all. Everything is I'm glad they're of interest to <laughs> Mac heads <laughs> because I am a Mac head myself. Yeah, I noticed that um, on one of your I, uh, videos. You have a MacBook Air or a Pro. Uh, well, I actually, I have an iMac and yes, a MacBook Pro. I did have the old Air, but uh, unfortunately it just got too long in the tooth and I switched for my sins to the uh, Pro a couple of years ago. Uh, but now that you can get an Air with a decent keyboard, I am intending to switch back <laughs> as soon as as soon as I can afford it. Oh yeah, I want to um, consider staying with yeah, the I, Pro because podcasting puts a pretty big load on your machine. Oh no, I use my iMac for that. Although my ah. iMac now is six years old, I'm, I'm waiting for them okay. to release new models of iMac as well. But I've been using a Mac since 1988. My high school here in the UK was one of the first in the country uh, to get Macs. And uh, we had, I think it was a Plus or maybe an SE Plus. I, I confess I can't remember. It was one of the tiny little all-in-one units with a yeah, black and white screen yeah. and a think it was a single floppy drive um and uh luckily for me my form tutor was also the head of the art department so he had it and it was locked away in his room but he let me have access to it and i just fell in love with it immediately i had never encountered a computer like this before i played computer games but could never get into the sort of coding and programming side because I don't know, for some reason, the, the command line stuff just completely turned me off. But the graphical interface just blew my mind. And I Mac Paint, uh, right? rapidly got into the I rapidly got into the graphics and layout programs. And I, I yeah. created three school magazines in the space of two years on that thing. You are not the first guest little... who's told me this story <laughs> about the high school um, yearbook or newspaper or science class in which the person sort of took yeah. over, got enthralled by the Macintosh and became sort of like the go-to person for all things Mac. And it stays with you for your whole life for some reason. It sticks. It absolutely did. And I should I should emphasize that up until this point, nobody was intending to use this Mac to make uh, school magazines. But I sat down at it and went, I could make a magazine with this. And so basically muscled my way in <laughs> and said to all the teachers, let me do the school magazine on this computer. It'll look great. And of course, there were like 50 fonts, all the built-in fonts, every single one on every page. It, it actually looked terrible. But to my teenage eyes, it looked amazing. Did you print it out with a laser writer? Oh, yes, of course. Of course. Desktop publishing, it was the thing. It really was. So then you went on to study graphic design in college, I would guess. 
I did. I did. And although it wasn't a straight line, funnily enough, but yes, once I uh, once I got decided that I wanted to become a graphic designer, I went to college and, of course, they had Macs there as well, but this was still 1990, 1991. So DTP hadn't completely taken over the industry yet. So I actually learned traditional methods of graphic design. You know, I can use... Uh, an enlargement camera and rubylith and bromides and or lick and stick as we used to call it in the trade i know how to do all of that stuff but i also knew how to use max and so that stood me actually in really good stead for the next few years as i worked in agencies and then publishing companies because i was able to move between the two worlds so you probably were planning on being a professional commercial graphic designer and sitting at a desk all day at some dreary office and then something happened you got into graphic novels tell me about that well actually i'd been reading comics since i was a child uh, literally one of my first memories is of my father reading a copy of the beano which is a, a british kids comic uh, to me when i was like four years old so i grew up i was a voracious reader but that i read everything Fiction, non-fiction, novels, comic books, French albums, you know, whatever it was, side of a serial packet, I would read it. And I actually always wanted to be a writer. Right from the moment I was a child, I was always making up stories when I was 10 years old. My mother bought a, uh, a manual typewriter, you know, an old clacky manual typewriter, mm -hmm. ostensibly for herself. But again, I kind of commandeered it, muscled my way in and said, I can use this to write stories. And so I did uh, and learned to touch type on a manual typewriter. I don't have anywhere near that finger strength now. I wish I did. And I always wanted to do that. But I also knew that that was a very, very hard career to get into, to make a career. Yeah. And so I'm, the graphic I'm design stuff was... That. Curious about right, that. Well, you, the, you were heads on with the path, a basically. graphics designer, and then, but there's something lurking in the back of your head about being a writer. Is that because you did well, a lot of reading, maybe science fiction, or just lots of science fiction? Yes, yes, I read oh, lots of SF fantasy, lots authors? of adventure fiction. Well, when I was a child, Harry Harrison, who wrote oh, the yeah. Steel Rat series, was my absolute number one favorite author uh, in the sci-fi field. But I also read lots of mysteries, um, like the famous five books and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Three Investigators books, if you remember those, by a ghost written by Robert Arthur. Um, so I loved mysteries. I loved sci-fi. I loved fantasy, all kind of kinds of genre stuff. Um, and that was... I always kind of figured that was what I would wind up writing. But like I say, I didn't know the way in. And then... It was actually when I was working at a magazine publisher in Bath here in England, uh, which for Future Publishing, on a magazine about the internet, funnily enough, a magazine called .net. I was the art director, and our web editor was also a voracious reader and ran a literary review website, and he read a few graphic novels, and he received used to receive comps from Titan, one of the graphic novel publishers here mm -hmm. in the UK. And I just kind of got back into them through that. Uh, and thought, oh, actually, yeah, I used to love comics, uh, and they're still pretty good, and this is something I could write. Uh, and so I, I set about breaking into comics, and it took me a few years, but yeah, eventually I, I got in. in uh, when was my first book? 2000. Magical combination, the ability to do graphics, art, and design, and wanting to be a writer. Graphic novel is perfect. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I can't draw, I should emphasize. <laughs> I'm a terrible artist, but it gave me a visual sensibility, which I think is very handy when writing graphic novels. It also allowed me, once again, to kind of muscle my way in and design my own books. And so a lot of my graphic novels are actually like I did the graphic design on them because why not? I could do that. Uh, and, you know, being a bit of a control freak, it meant that I could make things look exactly how I envisaged them. Was it a sideline where you were just picking up pocket money or did it start to become serious money? It, at first, it was a sideline. It was just something I did in my spare time, uh, you know, evenings and weekends and what have you. But I always wanted it to be a career. Like I said, I, this is something I'd always wanted to do. And don't misunderstand me. I enjoyed being a graphic designer, but I reached a point where I kind of knew that I had to make a real go of being a writer because if I didn't, I would regret it. You know, I was reaching a point where going freelance an age, I should say, where going freelance would have been financially irresponsible if I'd left it much longer. And so I thought to myself, well, if I don't try it now, you know, I, I won't for another 10 years. And in 10 years time, it'll be too late. And then I will absolutely resent the fact that I never gave it a go. So I just kind of jumped in. Uh, I'd had a couple of things published by that point. This was 2002. But I certainly wasn't earning enough to make a living. Um but I thought, well, what the hell? So I, I jumped in with both feet. I had an agreement with my fian my then fiance, uh, to as long as I got enough work to last me to pay my share of the bills basically for six months, then I would carry on doing it. Um, but luckily for me, what happened was I, I went freelance. I emailed everybody I knew, every editor I knew in the comics industry, telling them that I'd gone freelance and then got avalanched uh, you know, submerged under an avalanche of work um, for people saying, oh, well, in that case, now you have the time to do all of this. Oh, <laughs> that, that helped a lot, I imagine, because there was probably some stress going from a situation where you're dreaming about doing something as a, as a personal dream, which usually has, you know, very positive connotations, into the pressure of all of a sudden having to produce and make money, and the, the, the dream becomes a little less delightful and a little more pressurized, Exactly so, yeah. Um, so, like I say, I was very fortunate that, you know, the people I knew within the industry were willing to give me more work to help me make it a full-time thing. And and that was nearly 20 years ago, and, and I never looked back. I was just going to say, I used, it took the words right out of my mouth, never looked back, yeah. So, there came I, a time well, when I you... rapidly, I rapidly discovered within oh, maybe like six or 12 months... Uh, of going freelance that I really liked it to the point where I never ever want to go back to an office job of any kind if I can at all avoid it and so I have done everything I can over the past 20 years to avoid having to go back into an office yeah so your initial successes with graphic novels how did you come around to the idea of regular conventional fiction novels well, uh, again you know I'd written short stories and stuff when I was a child so the form wasn't you know uh, unknown to me and actually my first book was an illustrated novella rather than a, a, a comic book so I knew the form and I knew that I could work in it but I also knew that again making money from it was very very difficult whereas making money in graphic novels and comic books if you know what you're doing actually is I won't say easy but it's easier certainly than trying to land you know a, a well-paid publishing deal for fiction um 
And so it was just that was just what I focused on as a way of becoming a writer and making a career. Um, I actually first my first sort of second career, <laughs> as it were, was actually video games. In 2006, I got hired to write uh, a tie-in comic for a video game that was being developed called Dead Space. And over the course of writing the comic, uh, you know, the producers got to see my work, liked it, and said to me, would you like to try out to write the game? And being somebody who had played computer games and video games since I was a child, I said, oh, yes, I certainly would. Did you actually and code so, the game? Did you actually write oh, the software? No, no. No, 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 no. I, I can't code. I'm not a coder or a programmer. Oh, that stuff absolutely melts my brain. So I you can kind of just storyboarded about, it. No, not even that. No, I can just about deal with HTML and CSS. That's that's the limit of my sort of coding abilities. No, I didn't storyboard. Uh, nothing like that. I wrote the script. The At that point, the story for that particular game was already pretty much set in stone. But in video games, somebody then needs to write a script, a bit like a screenplay that the performers will act out and motion capture uh, performers will perform to, you know, mm. then be translated onto mm. the screen and stuff. And so that was what I did for Dead Space. And it turned out to be a game changer. Uh, I mean, that part of my bio may sound hyperbole, but it really did reinvigorate and change a genre, what was then considered a moribund genre of survival horror. And it became an absolute cult classic it's still the game that people want to talk to me about the most even though it is over 10 years old and i've written many many other video games in the years since dead space is the one that everybody always wants to talk to me about if they're you know a gaming fan so when you first started this process there was this pressure to make money which kind of like puts a pallor on your dream and then you start getting very very successful and then you're making, you know, really good money. Does the money then become a substitute for the drive to write? Or is there still that you know, little voice inside you that yearns out to express yourself? Well, I mean, let me be clear about what constitutes really good money. Um, you know, at no point have I been able to stop working. Uh, I, I, I'm not you know, even with, uh, and we get, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but even with things like, you know, the movie, Atomic Blonde and stuff, I'm not retired, and I certainly couldn't afford <laughs> to retire. <laughs> um, yeah, much, and, but the thing is, I probably wouldn't want to anyway, and that really answers your question, is that even if, and obviously it's impossible to put this to the, really to the test without it actually happening, but I know myself well enough by now to know that even if I didn't have to earn a living writing, I would write anyway. It's just, it's what I do. Well, I want to get to the Atomic Blonde in the second half of the show, and I've got a whole bunch of more questions for you about that and other things. But first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with Anthony Johnston, writer and podcaster. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is MacPaw. One of MacPaw's apps I want to tell you about today is Clean My Mac 10. Clean My Mac 10 is a beautifully designed application for managing clutter on your Mac. It shows you exactly what's stored on your Mac, revealing app leftovers and system junk that you didn't even know existed. The app's most popular feature is the Smart Scan. It examines your system for system log files and user cache that is no longer needed. 
SmartScan also does a quick malware scan. Time to complete? Just a few seconds. Designed for Mac OS 10.10 and higher, Clean My Mac 10 helps speed up even the oldest machines. The maintenance feature offers multiple tweaks to optimize your slow system. Installation takes just a couple of minutes. Clean My Mac 10 has a trial mode which allows you to try out the app's features for free and decide whether it works for you. Visit macpaw.com, that's M-A-C-P-A-W.com forward slash podcast to purchase a subscription and select the right license for your needs. Clean My Mac 10 is also available in the Apple App Store. So check it out. And thanks, MacPaw, for being our sponsor. We're back on chatting with writer and podcaster Anthony Johnston. You're somewhere in the UK. This is a really good connection. Yes. <laughs> it is. I've always it's had nice to success. hear a native accent. So I want to ask you now about your novel writing career. I'm curious because I'm a big reader of science fiction and novels. So you write your novels on a Mac. Yes. And you use Hooray Scrivener, right? Yes. I have been using Scrivener pretty much since it launched. In fact, I was the first pro comics writer to use it, as far as I'm aware, in any case. Um, and I actually helped Keith, the developer, design the graphic novel template that is included with the app. Oh, cool. Cool. What are some of the things you love about Scrivener? I love the fact that it allows me to have all my notes to hand easily found, you know, and visible while I'm writing. I am I'm an inveterate outliner and I like to work with my notes visible to remind me because I get caught up in what, <laughs> in what I'm writing uh and if I don't have my notes with me, I will inevitably write a chapter, get to the end of it, and then realize I forgot five really important plot points that I was supposed to include in that chapter because I was just too swept away by enjoying writing it and the characters and the, the dialogue and what have you. So that's that's a really big bonus uh, for a Scrivener. But also the fact that I can write non-linearly and then compile it all together at the end in a non-destructive fashion was an absolute game changer for me because... I I mean, and I'm sure this is probably related to why I do so many different things. I like to jump around when I'm writing. I'm not one of these people who starts at the start and then just writes all the way through to the end. I will look ahead and go, oh, well, maybe I'll write that chapter or maybe I'll write all these chapters from a certain character's point of view before doing the rest. It, it just gives me that freedom to write however I want to. And that really helps with my productivity. Do you ever get into any continuity issues with using that method? Oh, yeah, sure. But that's what revision's for. The, import <laughs> the, catch the important first. <laughs> thing, yeah, I mean, the writing. important thing for me is getting the draft finished. Get that first draft finished. And I advocate this all the time to younger writers. Get the first draft finished. And once it's done, then you can revise it. And, you know, nobody will ever see that first draft. I call it the zero draft because technically it doesn't exist. Nobody will ever see it except me. Um, and so when I get to the end of it, then I will revise and fix all of those continuity errors. And that's the version that other people will then read. Does your story ever get out of hand or you come up with ideas that take you where you didn't know you were going to go? And then you realize that you've struck gold and then you have to revise some other chapters too? Yes. Oh, yes. That's, that's definitely happened where something that I hadn't anticipated 
comes to mind, I write it and I go, oh, oh, this is actually better than what I had <laughs> originally outlined. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I say, I am an inveterate outliner, but I give myself permission to stray from the outline if something comes to mind that is just obviously better. Tell me about the Bridget Sharp series. Uh, it involves spies and Cold War and espionage. How did you, with a graphics background and your uh, technical career, how did you come to get involved in this, the espionage kind of stuff? Did you have some well, experience uh, in that area, or was it based on the novels that you read, or James Bond books, or how did that work? I don't have any experience in espionage, certainly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have some experience, obviously, in you know online tech and what have you. Just to be clear, the Bridget Sharp books are not Cold War. They're set in the modern day. They're cyber espionage. The Cold War stuff is the Lorraine Broughton uh, books, the graphic novels that the uh, Atomic Blonde was based oh, okay. on. Okay. Um, Tell me about the Bridget Sharp series. What's about? What's the premise? There's well, two that's books. Why There's I, the Euphoria Code and the Tempest Project. The Exphoria Code, yes, and the Tempest Project. That's why I wrote the Bridget Sharp novels. Was because I was at that point when I started to write those books. Atomic Blonde was basically in production and was you know going. I knew it was going to be released soon, and so. Uh, I'm not normally the sort of person who thinks about things from a kind of marketing or mercenary point of view. And anybody who looks back at my career will see that, you know, I've done many things which somebody who was more commercially minded maybe wouldn't have done or would have done differently. Um, but I'm very much a kind of folly amused kind of writer. But I knew I, I love spy fiction anyway. I grew up reading spy fiction. Uh, I love Cold War. I grew up in the Cold War in Europe, for heaven's sake. You know, I love Cold War fiction. I love spy movies and books and graphic novels and what have you. So that was why I wrote the uh, Atomic Blonde series. And then knowing that I was soon going to be known for that above all other things, I thought, okay, well, my first foray into proper fiction should probably be more spies. But I wanted obviously didn't want to repeat myself and so i thought i better do something different and that's why i latched on to cyber espionage so in these books brigitte sharp is a young elite hacker recruited by mi6 uh to for an anti-terrorism an anti-cyber terrorism unit within mi6 very small unit very specialist watching and monitoring you know the online world and chatter for uh, threats against the UK, whether mm -hmm. in the real world or the online world. Um, so that's the that's the setup. But then in the first book, in the Exphoria Code, her best friend is killed by, and she suddenly realizes by a spy, most likely. And through his death, she discovers there is a mole within a top secret Anglo-French drone project. Uh, and Bridge is Anglo-French herself, so she gets sent undercover to root out this mole, winds up uh, saving London from a, a terrorist attack with a dirty bomb delivered by drone. And then in the new book, The Tempest Project, she is battling a mysterious hacker known only as Tempest, who is attacking politicians and civil servants with ransomware. And uh, there's she gets drawn into the dark web world of cryptocurrency and African rebel militia and Russian hacking workshops based in mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the origins of Atomic Blonde getting into a movie process. I had Christopher Moore on the show a couple weeks ago, and he uh, has written a whole bunch of cool books. One of my favorites is The Stupidest Angel. 
And we chatted about the fits and starts of getting a really popular book made into a movie. I want to hear how that happened with you. Um, what was the process? Who approached you? What was the, the, the steps taken? And were there any fits and starts? And uh, were there any differences of creative opinion and rights? And tell me the whole story about how a novelist gets a book made into a movie. Well, I have had lots of fits and starts over the course of my career. Many, many, you know, many times I've been down the road of people being interested in optioning something and then it falling through or actually having stuff optioned, uh, going into development and then ultimately nothing happening. And that's yeah. a tale as old as time itself. You know, yeah. any author will tell you the same thing. But it actually stood me in good stead because it meant that when Atomic Blonde happened, I remained pretty firmly rooted to the ground uh, right up until the point that photography actually started because I knew that at any point everything could fall through. That said, it was a relatively easy process, actually. I finished... The, the graphic novel was originally called The Coldest City. Right. And I finished writing that in 2009. And then while it was being drawn, the script was being shown around Hollywood by the production partners of the publisher the graphic novel publisher had a hollywood ah. arm and so they were showing it around and they showed literally my graphic novel script around hollywood um because i write in a fairly lean style and they were like we can just take this out it's practically a screenplay anyway it's fine so they did and you know talks started and a few people were interested in what have you but it pretty quickly became clear that charlie's theron's company were the most interested and so you know, so began a period of negotiation, uh, which I wasn't really all that involved in, to be perfectly honest. I left that up to, you know, the specialist guys. Uh, and then just before the book was published in 2012, they confirmed, paid for the option, uh, and it went into pre-production. And then it took, and then nothing happened. <laughs> and then it took another three years of further pre-production development and trying to find the right director and what have you before we found David Leach, who at the time was, as a director, was really only known for having co-directed the first John Wick movie with his partner, Chad Stelsky. And Chad and Dave are both former stuntmen and stunt coordinators, uh, which is why they can direct a movie like John Wick. And uh, they really zeroed in on this project. And then scheduling clashes meant that Dave had to do it alone while Chad uh, filmed uh, John Wick 2. And so it was just, it was Dave's first solo movie, uh, which is quite a thing to have Charlize Theron and James McAvoy and all these people in your first ever solo, you know, your directorial debut. But he handled it brilliantly. And we actually, no, didn't really have any creative differences because was I was a co-producer. Yeah. yeah, I was... I was a co-producer, so I'd already seen the screenplay. I'd already given notes on the screenplay, and, you know, it had gone through a few drafts written by uh, Kurt Jonstadt. And when Dave came on board, his innovation was, because the graphic novel is very John le Carre. It's very noir, very gritty, very black and white. And Dave's innovation was to say, well, we can't film this. You know, you, you can't, you could film it, but it would look terrible. It would be boring. Ah. Uh, it, it works great on the page, but it's not a movie. And I didn't disagree. But what he said was, what if instead of making it a monochrome noir, we saturate everything and turn all the neon up like it was in the 80s? Can we still make a noir that is actually full of color? 
And I thought that was an absolute stroke of genius. And it, uh, you know, it was, it turned out to be right. So off we went. And like I say, I was a co-producer, so I was involved, but I, I've written adaptations myself. I've turned other things into comic books. So I've been on the other side of that fence. And therefore I was very happy because it was clear that these people knew what they were doing. I was very happy mm-hmm. to stand back and let those people do their jobs. Well, and your trust them. maturity matched theirs. You didn't have any idiosyncratic ideas that conflicted with good filmmaking principles. Exactly. Exactly. It was uh, what I said at the time uh, was I've written, I've made the best graphic novel I can. Now it's up to you to make the best movie you can. And however you feel that needs to be done, you have my blessing. Go away and do it. Very cool. Now, you mentioned earlier in the show that you haven't made enough money to retire. Obviously, being the co-producer and, and author of a smash hit movie like Atomic Blonde <laughs> didn't pay very much. <laughs> it, it, it didn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, it did pay, but it didn't make me a millionaire or anything. Oh. A lot of people think that I immediately started, you know, bathing in yak's milk or something. And that's really not the case. <laughs> Oh, pays handsomely, but not enough to retire on. It well pays, maybe not handsomely, just sort of you know ruggedly charmingly. <laughs> All right, well let's leave it at that. It sounds good. Uh, the <laughs> other thing that you do is um, you're a podcaster like me, and uh, you have two podcasts going. Uh, the first is interesting. It's uh, writing and breathing, a show that talks about the why, how, and what we write, where you chat with fellow authors of all kinds. And one of your guests has been uh, Macintosh guru, technical writer, and sometimes science fiction writer Dan Morin, who's also Correct. been on my show. He was delightful. Yeah, Dan so is delightful, yeah. Tell me about the, this podcast and who, you ha- who else have you had on the show that's been interesting, and why do you do it, and who's been on? Well, I do it because, I mean, I've been podcasting for five or six years now, um, and most of the stuff I do is actually on the Incomparable Network, which, of course, Dan is also you know a member of, a founder member of, really. Uh, I came along later. Um, and so I, I've done a lot of stuff for them, but now I... I had I used to do a show for them called Unjustly Maligned, which was a lot of fun, but I had to stop doing it because it just took up too much time, unfortunately. As my writing career and Atomic Blonde and everything started to kind of blow up, I just didn't have the time. So I wanted to do a new show, but I, you know, I kind of, as always, I was like, well, what's it going to be about? And what I realized is that the one thing I love doing, probably more than anything else, actually, when I'm chatting with other authors is talk, comparing our processes, talking about how we work, literally about, you know, what hours do you sit down at the keyboard? Do you outline or do you write everything mm-hmm. by the seat of your pants? Mm-hmm. How do you take notes? Just the kind of questions I was asking you. <laughs> yeah, but I love talking about that stuff. I'm an absolute process junkie. And so I thought, well, we don't get asked this stuff a lot. Other writers will ask us, like I say, we'll you'll get three writers together and they will inevitably eventually start talking about process. But when we're being interviewed, we don't often get asked those kind of very nerdy questions, often because the people asking the questions don't necessarily know what to ask. So being obviously in a position where I am a veteran writer now myself and also a podcaster, I thought, well, I can do this. I'm in a fairly unique position of being able to talk to these people on their level and ask them questions they don't 
normally get asked. And so that's essentially what writing and breathing is. The title comes from the idea that breathing is writing is as important to me as breathing. Uh, and also it's a nice unique name, which is good because I could get the URL. It's always a concern. <laughs> <laughs> so who have, some, who have been some of the uh, authors that you've interviewed? Mm. So uh, who have I had on so far? I've had uh, Dan Moran, as you say, Maya Rodal, who's a best-selling romance novelist. I've had, and you'll have to forgive me, I've recorded loads that are banked and not yet released, so I can't actually remember off the top of my head what's gone live and what's to come. But uh, Kieran Gillen, who's uh, one of the top comics writers working today, uh, I just did one with Lauren Bukas, which I know isn't out yet, but will be out soon. Uh, Amal El Mokhtar, which I think comes out... Uh, at the end of this week uh, when this show will be broadcast or it may, may be out already um, yeah just loads of like I say interesting writers some of them are my friends you know it's easy to get friends on your show but some of them aren't and they're just people whose work I admire or whose writing style I admire that I'm fascinated by let's say wanting to find out how they work it's uh, I'm trying to spread Oh, Brian Hill, who's a screenwriter as well, um, was on. I'm trying to make it a broad spread of styles, demographics, ages, you know, people of color, older writers, younger writers, uh, people who write comic books, poetry, novels, screenplays, just all manner of writers that I, that I can convince to come on the show. Did you learn anything surprising from one or more of the authors that you hadn't anticipated? Oh, yes. Yes. I think I've probably learned something surprising from all of them. Uh, Brian Hill that I just mentioned, a screenwriter, he writes for the Titans TV show uh, and has also written comic books and screenplays. But Titans is what he does now. Um, I discovered that he uh, meditates on his outline when he gets an idea. He sits and meditates for an hour and effectively watches the movie of his imagination oh, cool. in his head. <laughs> and that's. And that's his outline. He Very doesn't write down his outline. He just has it in his head. That blows my mind. I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like me. I write my articles in my head first, maybe in a recliner or just sitting and resting. Really? And I write the article and I outline it. And That's fascinating. It can be very do you not technical. Find that, and then I just, do you not just, find that you ever forget anything? No. And wow. Then, and then I get the, get to the keyboard and it just flows because it's already been written. Oh, I envy you. <laughs> I, I wish I could write like that. <laughs> ah, so it's too bad you had to give up uh, Unjustly Maligned, because that sounds very interesting. You had Will Wheaton on there. Yes, yeah. uh, Will was one of the very first guests, bless him. Will and I are friends, so he was very kind to come on the show and, and do talk about Tron, actually. Oh, yeah, the premise of that show Will? was to... I, uh, through Warren Ellis who is a very famous and successful comic writer and now also writes the Castlevania uh, animated series on Netflix. I've known Warren for more than 20 years, uh, and I got to know Will through him because I'm not even sure how he and Will got to know one another. Probably through Patrick Stewart, actually, uh, because I know Patrick Stewart at one point was in talks to play Spider-Jerusalem, the hero of Warren's comic Transmetropolitan. See, all these little connections, all these tenuous connections line up just so. You dropped a big, heavy name uh, on me. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, but, oh, so I was going to say the premise of Unjustly Maligned is simply that I asked people to come on the show and tell me about something that they love that other people don't. So, for example, Dan Moran was on the show again talking about the movie Hudson Hawk. 
the uh, the Bruce Willis mega flop, which he and I both think is a great movie, but most people will tell you is is not. <laughs> mm, interesting. So what's next? A Bridget Sharp movie? It sounds like those are perfect to be made into movies as well. Any discussion well, going we on? We were there? actually. Well, there's discussions. There was discussions. Uh, after the Exforia Code came out, we were in discussion with several TV companies, actually, to make it into a, a miniseries, uh, which would have been quite cool. But unfortunately, you know, again, it, like I say, I've been down that road many times. Lots of people show interest, and then ultimately nothing happens. Um, maybe that will happen at some point. Uh, the fact that Atomic Blonde exists obviously helps a little in that sense mm -hmm. but not as much as you might think to be perfectly honest with you um besides that i'm working on i mean there'll be a third bridget sharp book uh i've actually uh, written and directed a short film myself that was filmed over zoom with some friends during lockdown and that will be released sometime in the next few weeks i'm just editing that at the moment uh i'm working on another novel a sort of straight gritty crime thing that i haven't announced yet uh i'm in talks to do an animated tv show um oh and i'm working on a big japanese video game at the moment which hasn't been announced yet but i've been working on that for nearly two years now what do you do for fun <laughs> this is fun <laughs> i do this <laughs> that is a long list of stuff to keep you busy wow Wow. I mean, that, that's not even, that's, I'm looking at the list. I keep a list on my corkboard of, uh, you know, everything that I've got going on this year. And that's actually not all of it, but I don't want to get into some of it. I can't talk about some of it, basically. Do you ever do anything like fly fishing or just no, <laughs> something to get your <laughs> no, mind off of work? <laughs> no, well, but like I say, this is, this is what I love doing. Um, but I, I know that I have a reputation for doing a lot and and actually for being very organized and that's the other thing that I, is coming up in the future is at the end of this year in october this year i have a book coming out called the organized writer which is literally a manual a productivity manual for writers to work on you know juggle multiple projects make sure you don't miss deadlines take control of your calendar all that sort of thing uh and that came about because friends kept bugging me saying like you really should write a book about how you manage to get all this stuff done <laughs> Cool, cool. Well, we've come to the end of the show. What a tour this has been of your career and your work. It's been amazing. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing with me. You're welcome. I, I hope it was of interest to your listeners. I know it will be, and it was a great interest to me, and I'm sure that everybody will be fascinated by hearing your story and how you succeeded and how you converted your graphics design career into what you've been doing lately. Amazing stuff. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Uh, best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter, uh, as with so many other people, and that is simply my name, at Anthony Johnston. But you must spell it correctly, uh, because my name is a little unusually spelled, but that means that I can get all the social media accounts that I want. It's quite nice. <laughs> uh, Very nice. Unfortunately, it also means that reviewers always spell my name wrong when they review my books, but never mind. So spell it right, A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Put that into Google, you will find me. Very good. Well, again, Anthony, thank you for being on the show. It's been fun. I really enjoyed it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. Folks, you've been listening to John Marcellaro and Anthony Johnston, writer and podcaster, on the Mac Observer's background note. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>